Hello and welcome. My name is Jo Frost, back with my co-host Peter Linus. This is Being Human. In today's episode, we're joined by our colleague and friend, Damalola Mikinday. Originally from London, she has Nigerian heritage. She grew up in Ireland. She's a lawyer by background, but works with us at the Evangelical Alliance. She's part of our advocacy team, but she also works with us on the Being Human Project. She's a worship leader, preacher, and all round brilliant person. This week, we explore Damalola's experiences around culture, identity, home, and the stories that shape us. We ask how our culture impacts our understanding of who God is and our relationship with Him. It's a conversation about presence, about connection, and about hope. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to Being Human. Angel has let me introduce an episode. We'll see if she cuts it, but let's go with it for now. It is my pleasure, our pleasure, to welcome Damalola McKinney. Um, and rather than me say too much about Damalola, who I've known for quite a number of years, and we'll see where some of the Irish connections are in this story, I'm going to ask you, Damalola, as we ask all our guests, to tell us one or two stories about yourself. Just what should people know about you as you come on the show? I'm afraid the limit of my creativity is just for the one story, but I'll do my best with the one. So yes, my name is Olua Damlola Toluanami Mackenday, but I'm Damlola to friends and we're friends, so we're okay. Um, this is a boy meets girl kind of story. So boy meets girl. The link is his cousin, who is the friend of the girl. Boy likes to tell lots of jokes. Girl likes to laugh. They hit it off. One thing leads to another. They get married and then their favorite and first child is born. Yours truly. Uh, so the boy is my daddy. He was raised in a mixed faith household, but he was raised in the Muslim faith because that was the faith of his father. And he came to put his trust in Jesus in his early teens. And the girl is my mom who was raised in nominal Anglicanism, both of them in Nigeria between two major cities. They meet, they move to London where they have links because of family and good old colonialism. And then I'm born and five years later we moved to Ireland where the rest of my siblings are born. And five years ago I moved back to London uh, to do the bar and at the moment between making really good coffee I work at my church in King's Cross and at the Evangelical Alliance that's my life in a nutshell wow wow no one thing <laughs> said that you said to do you said a lot of things just to, what do you mean by do the bar I well then I added a wee cheeky joke about making really good coffee I think I make decent coffee but I actually meant the bar as in to train as a barrister as in to be a lawyer which like you I have repented of as it were <laughs> I can't tell you how long it took me to work out that the word barrister and the word barista were actually two different words um, I'm so glad you got that, there in the end yeah I, me too I mean that basically the same career um <laughs> It does feel like it. It does feel like it. So. No offense to any barristers. <laughs> either listening. side. Of course. Either side. Indeed. Either way. Either way. I mean, Joe Frost is feeling the pressure of two barristers on this podcast today. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you called her mother superior. So, more on that. This is like a, another therapy session. But look, you and I first came across each other, Dumbledore, in Belfast. Um, and you were probably uh, navigating some of these these challenges because uh, part of what we want to explore today, I suppose, is <laughs> your cultural heritage and how that has shaped you as somebody coming from a very different uh, set of cultures. Because uh, when were you even back and first in Nigeria then? Because you were born in London, moved to Ireland pretty quickly. 
Indeed. So one of the biggest dramas of my life has been the fact that one of the places that has most shaped me in my life was for many years a country that I'd never been in. And yet I was very much raised in the Nigerian diaspora. So the norms, the cultural values, what informed reality for me and how I placed myself in the world was very, very tightly influenced, very, very closely linked with this place that I had no immediate sense of for myself. So I went to Nigeria for the first time when I was about five years old, and I've been like a handful of five times over the course of my life. Um, so for me, being Nigerian has always been mediated by this tension of being out of Nigeria and yet being a Nigerian in various contexts. And it has made for um, some counseling sessions and a fascinating outlook on life. So how does that work is that because of the extended family is that because of language is that because of customs food where did you feel Nigeria influenced your childhood most strongly the sh the quickest answer is everything so it is the contrast of one way to be at home and at church and um, values around how I related with the elders and um, how boys and girls could get on around each other. What we did with our food, eating certain foods with our hands is the norms for how we would do that. Just a whole range of ways to be. And the clearest, con there's a contrast at every single level. And the contrast began to be come to more of the fore of my mind. I obviously wouldn't have described it in this way as a three-year-old, but like in going to nursery and then in going to school and relating more with the dominant culture around me and seeing how much I wasn't in it, seeing how children around me spoke to my parents. My mama told me never try that with me and things of that nature. There were just other ways of being that were taken as read outside of my home that very much were not in accordance of what was happening in our home. And some of the task of my parents and some of what they would repeat is, yeah, you're in this place but you're different. Being different is actually part of the parcel of who you are. In certain environments, your difference will be received well. In other environments, it won't be received well. But whatever happens, you need to be rock solid in your identity. You've got a heritage outside of this moment. And at points, you'll feel ashamed of it. But this is something to be proud of. And we're going to bring you into the story of your life from your heritage. That was a big part of my upbringing. So part of what we're exploring is this sense of presence and place in the world and where we are. And that's why I like to imagine where people might be listening and how they're doing that and how they embody that. So I'd love to like push in a little bit more to that sense of, of I suppose, dislocation that you experienced and how that then has impacted, particularly your thinking around the place of your faith, how, how being Nigerian has shaped that mm. and how being in Ireland, in London, Northern Ireland and only really intermittently in Nigeria and that has shaped that. So in a nutshell, how I've been graced to understand through like the different places I've been exposed to and different thinkers and reading and whatnot, the un understand my position as a Christian in my Western context is that I am in exile. And I think that's a really helpful framework biblically to understand how we find ourselves as Christians in relation to the culture around us as we navigate our Western context. And that sense of dislocation is part and parcel of being an exile. I see Peter wants to jump so, in. Because so well, you said that. exile and I want to just, can you unpack, just tell me what you're meaning by exile. What, what's presumed, what are you pulling, what, what thread are you pulling on a bit more there? Indeed. So, okay, let me try it. 
I'm going to continue the thought that I was on. And then if I've not explained it sufficiently, you can pull me back in. Uh, so exile, this sense of being dislocated from home. So physically, that's what happens for the people of Israel. They get carted off because of their disobedience. They get carted off to different environments, to Assyria and then to Babylon. And crucially, so zoning into the um, exilic experience in Babylon for a moment, Daniel and his friends, for example, they have grown up. So they, they grew up at home and then they find themselves now involuntarily in this other immersed in another reality that is so contrary to what they grew up with at every single level. Now in our Western experience for Many is a bit different for me with like the different cultures going on. But for many people as Christians in our Western experience, they've not been carted off from home. They're still at home, but home has changed around them. Some of the basic understandings around what it is to be a human being, what it is to live a flourishing life, even when it comes to morality, basic understandings have changed around them and points and places in ways that we have language for, but the speed of change is such that at points, language can take quite some time to catch up. And yet viscerally, we feel this sense of why... I don't, I don't belong. I should, sh I should belong. I don't belong. This is what I've known all my life. And yet there's this deep unease. I'm speaking a language that isn't always well understood by those around me and those around me are speaking a language that I don't always understand. And something of that was like the, so some of the pain of growing up with a somewhat dislocated identity. There was always a pressure of or we do things at home in one way and things around us are happening very, very differently. And as a young girl, and even still now, trying to make sense of why things are being done so differently and grappling with that. And I think for many um, who might be listening, they can identify with that and being a Christian, there are um, there's this whole reality that we enter into when we come to relate with the living God through his son, Jesus. And yet so much of that reality is disdained or found to be disgusting by those around us. And there's a real sense of loneliness, of not fitting in, of not even at points working out how to fit in, in ways that don't betray the very real heritage that you are stepping into a moment with. Now, being a Christian doesn't necessarily herald itself the way my skin does on my body, but then you have a choice. How much of my identity am I going to make known in this environment or am I going to try and assimilate because there will be ease to my inhabiting this moment if I assimilate. But if I do assimilate, then the entirety of my heritage is gone. And that's some of the drama and some of the tension of exile but just the i've articulated some of the pain of it but the biggest point of promise alongside this is my background my mixed cultural background has at all points made it possible for me to conceive of at least two different ways of being that there is an alternative beyond that which appears there is an alternative way of being that i can root myself in i think that is some of the glory of being a christian even amidst the pain of this moment that we can see a different way to be and that we can share that with those around us I was going to ask a question around where do you feel at home? And actually, home was one of the things that you just drew out in is in kind of opposition to feeling in exile. 
for anyone that I've met that have either kind of that third culture idea where they grew up in one place, moved somewhere else, now don't fit in either because it no longer makes sense where they grew up. They've moved beyond that culture. They never fully understood the culture that they moved to. And now they sort of sit slightly in exile of both. Um, there is that question of actually finding more ease with others who find themselves in exile and homeless. And actually there's a camaraderie almost of that cultureless, rootless space. But then also mm. where does finding our home, our rest, our ease relationally rather than physically come in? And where does Jesus come into being your sense of ease or comfort? How has that experience manifest? Hmm. I think one of my biggest re revelations in trying to work this out for myself has been, if I capture it in a nutshell, home is a question of identity more than it is a question of location. So for me, for example, my being Nigerian has always been mediated to me by the surrounding cultural context. And so for me to physically be in Nigeria is in some ways a different form of being Nigerian than the one I grew up in. It sounds kind of meta, but hopefully people are still with me. Um, and so some of what that means is I experience dislocation here, but I also experience a sense of dislocation there. Yeah. And that's been a very hard thing to swallow at points. But what has made it more palatable is to understand my place and to, to put roots down in my mixed cultural identity and to foster a sense of community and understanding with those for whom that's a bit easier because they also navigate that negotiated space around their own identity and then to relate with the world around me wherever I am from that place of assurance in my own identity so and and enabling me to connect as much as is possible but to also appreciate my distinction from the culture around me and if I were to apply something of that framework to us as Christians so it's different in that we will one day ultimately be at home in a renewed earth where the presence of Jesus is our most immediate reality, like all the things that contend with our experience of the revelation of God's son will be out of the way and we'll just have premium, beautiful, concentrated Jesus all day, every day. So we do have that to look forward to. And I look forward to that day when all the divergent parts of my cultural identity are held together in him. But in the meantime, I have Christian family. And in a sense, in a similar way to which like, I can look out in a room and scan the people who have like Nigerian or black heritage and feel a sense of like, home even just by seeing them there there's something of my being with other people who know and follow jesus and acknowledge him as lord that is home it's our identity and home home is the ability to recognize the presence of god wherever I am something of that is what changes Daniel's experience of exile. He seeks to be consecrated even in Babylon, which on one hand is like, 
absolutely bonkers. It doesn't get more pagan than this. But because he's like rooted in his identity, this like, again, links him to revelation. And he knows that God is here even in Babylon. And so home has followed him. Home has been ripped from him, but because home is the presence of God and the reality of God that can't be taken away from him, even in Babylon and even in this relationship with his friends of mutual support and accountability, they are at home and they can still partner with God's purposes, even though their worlds have turned on their heads. Love that. Home has followed him into exile. It's beautiful. So one of the things I've heard you chat about in relation to this is growing up within Nigerian culture and household, um, it's much less secular than the culture around. And you've, um, I, I guess that creates both challenges because your your home culture and a lot of the spaces where you're feeling safe uh, are much more open to faith and particularly Christian faith in your background. Um, but also as our, as our culture has shifted around what it means to be secular uh, i think you've talked about then some of the learnings from that i suppose a couple of questions that like it's almost like what what do you understand when we talk about secular it's something we've talked about in this podcast but it's always really interesting to hear people's understanding of that and then how does your by try cultural heritage help you navigate uh, living in a secular culture and i guess you've got the extra piece because i mean ireland saw a huge shift in the time when you were probably growing up from a very catholic country and it really entered a very rapid period of secularization and then London one of the most secular in a sense but also just culturally diverse cities in the world that you're not inhabiting. Uh, in a nutshell secularism to me is a climate that diminishes one's view of God so it doesn't negate it it doesn't um utterly rubbish it but who God can be needs to be funneled through a number of preconceptions and assumptions that radically change who God <laughs> actually is, who are radically, are radically different to what's been revealed in the scriptures. So for example, like secularism doesn't mean that I can't be a Christian or people can't be Christians. There is an appreciation for something beyond, but for something beyond to be worthy of my own ascent as a secular person, it needs to make most sense to me. So I can have a faith but it just needs to be in a God who is more like me, who more resembles me. And some of the biggest contrasts between my experience of being a Christian in a Nigerian diasporic setting versus outside of that has been at home, the God that I was introduced to in the context of my home, it was taken as read that he was other. And in worship, I was coming to acknowledge this God that is other to me and to find my myself under him the great other the holy god who set apart and this isn't to like um paint this in overly idealized terms all as we come to know jesus all of us are coming to know him through a culturally informed lens and that was absolutely true of what i grew up with and there's lots of that that i've been both like appreciating as i've gotten older and unlearning but crucially because that environment is not as secular and not affected by secularism in the same way, I could still fundamentally get come to terms with a God who is other to me. And I find 
the faith around me outside of that setting fundamentally different. So just to try and like ground this somewhat. My daddy was preaching while I was at home recently, so at home in Ireland, and he was preaching on um, God's judgment on the household of Eli's. This is in like second, first Samuel chapter three, I think. No, chap- chapter two. Um, and in it, God is like, daddy's just saying what's happening in the passage. And there's, there's no caveats. There's no, there isn't the sort of like couching or um, taming that might happen outside of outside of that and like not I don't need to get on a flight I could go to another church in Dublin and just not have a sermon that's preached in the same way and there are pitfalls to that but fundamentally daddy doesn't need to convince his congregation that God is other to them they take that as red whereas if I'm preparing to preach something over here in a range of places some of what I'll be dealing with is the utter implausibility (laughs) to people of what they might encounter of the God of the Bible. And if it's implausible to them, then they won't receive it. And so I'm faced with this tension of like trying to be faithful to God's revelation of himself and to also convey that to people for whom a lot of how God chooses to reveal himself just doesn't make sense. (laughs) And that's like absolutely fascinating and a fascinating moment to try and steer as as a person and a preacher. So just to ask... um... So the the story of Eli and his sons, is that right? So Eli's sons become uh, priests. Scoundrels. Yeah, utterly. So they take the Ark of the Covenant out because they think that that's how they're going to win the battles. God kills them um, and they lose the battle. That's right. Um, And Eli is so shocked and appalled by the behavior of his sons and God's judgment on them. He drops down dead. Um, and it's yes, it's, it there is there is so little of the kind of God is my healer, God is my advocate, God is my friend, God is here to love me and show me grace, all the me, me, me stuff that we often encounter in our preaching, in our discipleship, in our devotion. And yet here we have a God of judgment, a God of wrath, a God of no compromise. And if you don't have an understanding, is this what you're saying? That if you don't have an understanding of the otherness and the holiness of God, then you can't understand the morality of what God did in that moment. Because in our sensibilities, that seems immoral. That seems mm-hmm. unjust, unkind. And God cannot not be kind. And therefore, if God is mean, then I can't believe in that God. And therefore I can't believe in what scripture tells me of that God. Is that kind of the the conflict that you're articulating? Yes. So like passages like that in, in, in general, all of the Bible, like my Nigerian cultural framework is still not the framework that the original heroes of the Bible received it in. So I need to do work wherever I am to come to understand the word of God as it was given. All of us have work to do in this, but the fundamental distinction is, can I, when I come before the word of the Lord, what is my posture? Is God needing to make out a case for his Godship to me? Or do I recognize that in coming before God, I'm coming before yeah, I'm coming into the Holy of Holies. I'm beholding the one who always was and who always will be. And like the central imperative to the being of God is his own glory. And in his kindness, I get to partake in that. But God is not a cosmic being that is just a better version of myself that will... 
that will accomplish my ends if I give him the right of money once a month and if I go to church a number of times a month. God is God and in his greatness and his kindness, I'm drawn into relationship with him. But yeah, he's not like a genie in the bottle and he's not my best friend in the sky. He is God and he is other and I am invited to relate with him and to be like him and to enter into the eternal other that is God in Christ. And that takes us to the heart of being human and image bearing. So the core of that is to be made in the image of God, but how we understand God is absolutely critical then to how we understand ourselves as image bearers. And I think you're right. We do struggle with God as other and his holiness and his awesomeness. We can sing about that, but to actually live into that is difficult because otherwise we end up, the alternative often is becoming a kind of self-referencing circle. Well, he's, I'm like God, God's like me. I'm like God, God's like me. And it's sort of, descends down into my friend Jesus <laughs> um, and, and it minimizes I think the otherness but but like how have you found I mean you, you were hinting at it there to, I was trying to preach teach pastor in London where you're you're and, and outside of the Nigerian diaspora like how do you do that better like how, how do we root that in how do we have those conversations what does that actually look like to try and hmm help people understand the otherness of God that again doesn't just return to a simple judgment narrative that that's one of the ways in yes. which he's other but is far from the only way in which he's other and certainly the culture I was raised in probably overemphasized that and I think from our conversations yours probably did a little bit too um so how do mm -hmm. we find a you know a really healthy holding together of what is is healthy even the right word how do we find a biblical holding together of all that God is to yeah. understand our role as image bearers yeah, because I'm. This is this is the big question, right? And it's like, um, the never-ending task and pursuit and invitation of like stepping into the reality of God and yet being fully rooted and present where I am and holding that and hosting that for the sake of the world around me. In a nutshell, I'd say some of the pitfalls of church in a more secular context is that we try and to be reflective of the culture around us as we host the truth of the gospel. And I think our task is not to be reflective of the culture around us. Our task is to be responsive to the culture around us, but to be reflective of the gospel. And some of what we need in that is we need the witness of each other to kind of highlight how culture, be it secular or less secular, has informed our understanding of the gospel. But at all points, we are seeking to love those around us, to try and understand them, to try and understand the world from their perspective, and yet to convey to them the revelation of God that is in Christ Jesus. So some of the drama of like uh, another way of trying to capture that is, so Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. So another way of rendering that is, I can only not be ashamed of the gospel when I know it as the power of God. If I, if I don't have a sense of the power of God, I will be ashamed of this story. I will not be able to fully live it out. I won't be able to fully live in it. I'll think that I am trying to rehabilitate God's public image when I share my faith. I'll think that I'm doing PR for God. But when I come to a revelation and recognize the power of God to save that 
that we encounter in Jesus the Christ. When I recognize the mercy of God amidst the justice of God, the love of God, like we can't make the gospel better. We can only convey it faithfully. God doesn't need my help to reach secular people. He needs my submission. And what I need, the confidence that I need to be able to proclaim this message is not in trying to tame it so that it is more palatable to people around me because in doing so I empty it of its power so I what I need to boldly convey the gospel is to live in it is to again and again be brought to my knees at God's revelation of himself in his son and from that place to get boldness to preach it to the world around me. The world doesn't need a tamed down, culturally, secularly informed version of Christianity. It needs Jesus, the son of God. And we need the people of God to see him afresh for themselves, to be nurtured in communities of faith. And from that place of confidence and being rooted afresh in our story, getting to share the power of God with the world around us. That's the challenge and yet the joy of being a Christian in this moment, I think. Wow, that'll preach, as they say. Um, you're heading towards where I'd love us to land a little bit and push into it. Just continuing this theme of like, what what does this look like? When we spoke to Karen Swallow Pryor, um, she spoke about the need for revival. Um, we've I've said, I've confessed before, I'm a fan of Mark Sayers and, and he's doing some brilliant cultural analysis <laughs> on secularism and individualism, but his passion and his drive and what he's crying out for is again, this need for revival, for renewal and in, in fresh forms. Like when you think of that, and again, coming from your cultural context where that's more common, what what might that revival look like? I mean, what is revival? What, what, what are we talking about there? And what could that look like in the church here within the UK? And are you seeing any signs of it? So we've spoken a bit about um, secularism and how I how I expressed it again was like a climate that diminishes our view of God. And some of what I long to see and what I expect revival to be as it kicks off, and I praise God, I do believe it is kicking off or we're seeing at least promising signs or as my pastor would express it and like how the scriptures express it, a cloud the size of a man's fist. Um, but yes, where God has been diminished or like tucked away in corners or need to be spoken of in pretty fine terms that we see the beauty of Jesus manifested and people getting to respond to him on his own terms and that affecting all of how we be human because that is that's the scope of the story it's not to um make sunday gatherings better for a cluster of people who are going to church it's for jesus's claim on all of reality and on his world to be fully manifested and that's some of what we're going after um and some of what some of the gift of a more transcendent or open to the transcendent background is being able to recognize the fullness of what we're contending against in our secular moment. So some of how I would describe secularism again is as a stronghold, a stronghold. And second Corinthians 10 tells us some of how we deal with strongholds that we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. Instead, we use God's mighty power to pull down strongholds. So we absolutely have conversations when we're grappling with some of the ideological roots of secularism. Absolutely. And then alongside that, we don't just use the tools in secularism of logic and rationality, but we take hold of God's weapons, of God's tools. We take 
responsibility and authority in the spirit as those who are who are indwelled by the spirit of God and we seek by the spirit to have strongholds uprooted so we talk and we pray and we fast and we seek a move of God and we don't just send children into school without grounding them in an alternative story like we take numbers of measures to live in the truth of what we are longing for and then we share and we love and we love those around us we seek to break bread with those who are not like us rooted and grounded in this story we like when the people of God inhabit a consecration so they accept that they're set apart they don't waste their energy trying to fit in when that's not the commissioning on them embrace that we are set apart and foster being set apart and yet that this consecration might be contagious that in every environment that we're in every taxi we're in every bus that we're in every shop that we're in that something of the kingdom of Jesus is being manifested as we live and inhabit our faith without this shame and timidity but like boldly proclaim who Jesus Jesus is in word and deed, that God will honor that lack of shame in him, like that ability to be to be identified with Jesus in the private space and in the public place. And he'll honor it with not just like bigger churches, but with his power being manifested in our day and our time. I think this is some of the gift of this moment to steward God's witness of himself in this moment, that coming generations and generations after them in this land, in these lands would have a witness of who Jesus is, that not on our watch will the gospel witness die out, but we'll steward it, we'll live in it, we'll be proud of it and we'll share it with the world. And when we do that, that's revival. Because you mentioned, I think this is fantastic, and you've mentioned consecration and holiness, and I know Joe is passionate about that too, so I kind of want to hear the interaction of this. So Joe, I mean, (laughs) you have strong thoughts and excitement around the kind of holiness part of this yeah I mean well we we talked about it a little bit with Rachel Gardner I mentioned it to Mackie because I blatantly nicked it from him um (laughs) credit where credit is due um I just well it, it was actually your Daniel line the idea that Daniel went into exile and yet home followed him because God's spirit went with him into exile. The holiness of God is the presence of God. To be holy, to be consecrated, yes, it is to be set apart in the world, but it is because we come near to who God is. So the holier we are, the closer, the nearer we are to God. And God doesn't set himself apart from the world. Actually, he comes into it. So when Moses encounters God in the burning bush, God doesn't say, go away, you're on holy ground. He says, take off your shoes, come near to me, you're on holy ground, but recognize the presence that you're in. And I I suppose for me, revival is this general, as opposed to specific, encounter with the nearness of God, that his holiness comes upon a culture, a society, a community that People are overwhelmed by the nearness of God and are suddenly confronted by what they had assumed was distant, absent and other is actually incredibly close. And not only is that a really convicting moment, oh, my goodness, I am not good enough to come into this, but it's also an incredibly attractive moment 
I need to sort myself out because I want to come nearer. David Bennett talks about the idea that your holiness is an invitation to somebody else to call out the holiness of another and invite them into that space. And I just love this idea that revival, yes, revival is a spiritual moment. It's It can be infused with worship, but it's also an incredibly practical day-by-day encounter with the nearness of the gospel that you are welcome come in this space and it is accompanied by word so we talk about Jesus we talk about his gospel we share scripture it's accompanied by worship we call people to recognize who God is and give him glory and it's accompanied by wonders it's accompanied by the power and the manifestation of transformed lives and for me I see that bubbling up in the smallness but also our history tells us that there is so much possibility for revival. Britain, especially with the Wesleyans and the Welsh revivals and the Hebridean revival, when our culture is on its knees, when our society is really struggling, actually we have a heritage that we get on our knees and even a remnant, even the smallest number of people praying for God to move has changed this nation throughout the centuries. Lord, let it come again. Because I just want everyone to know that their home has followed them, no matter how exiled somebody feels, no, ha- no matter how distant and far away they feel from hope, home is following them. And it's just, I I want to see revival. I want to see it in my family. I want to see it on my street. I want to see it in my life. Come, Lord Jesus. I just, yes, come on. Amen. That language, I think, and yeah, because we love it, re- renewal, revival. Sometimes people get tripped on that, but I think we're all saying, uh, and, and Damalo, I'm going to come to you in a moment to whether it's contagious consecration or something else you want to finish on. But I think one of the themes for us is that the, the secular stories or narratives out there are not coherent. People are going, this doesn't make sense anymore. And there is a desire for something more. And people are looking for that in various places. Sometimes it's in the occult and sometimes it's in other religions and sometimes it is in Jesus. But they want an experience that is more than what they see around them because that's not cutting it anymore. It's and Mark Sayers puts language of crisis individualism. The grey zone, others have talked about the kind of the perpetual or permanent crisis we're in is the language we put in the book. We are in a very unusual, uncertain time and it's chaotic and it's contested and it's a constant state of crisis. People are saying, please tell me there's something more than this. So with that set up, what do you want to say as we finish off? I'll give you the last minute on, on the something more, the contagious consecration that we need, whatever it is, this, this spirit of revival that we want to see in this moment. Hmm. Yeah, I love um, some of what Joe said just there. Being on our knees is not a bad place to be. And actually, it's where we need to be, um, both so that we can come to know God as he truly is, which is the chief end of our entire existence is to know God is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And we can't enjoy him if he needs to be like us and if he can't be himself. So as this cultural moment is pushing us to our knees, that's a good place to be. Let's stay on our knees. On our knees, we get a fresh revelation of who God is. And as we behold him as he truly is and not how we have made him to be, but as he truly is, we get transformed. And in God's transforming presence, we are those who are enabled 
to convey that transformation, be agents of that transformation to those around us. And so I guess my prayer for myself and for all of us listening and inhabiting this moment is that we would, amidst the various things that we need today and the various responsibilities that we have today, that we would each today get a fresh revelation of Jesus, of his majesty, of his glory, of his kindness, of his sacrifice. And from that place of knowing who he is, that we would know who we are and that we would be encouraged and emboldened to identify with him in all the various ways that we need to do that in our day and in our world today. Would that be the case? And would we see revival through that in his name? Amen. 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 So you, listen, you might be on a run, as we said earlier, you might be in the car, you might be on a train and this might seem like the strangest thing, but we are absolutely praying, come Holy Spirit, because that Shekinah glory is a weighty thing. It does drive us to our knees and it does require like a robust thing to kind of cope and, and hold the weight of what God wants to give us in, in a wonderful way. So maybe you do need to pull in, maybe you need to pause, maybe on your walk, you just need to take a moment because, uh, you know, God is pouring out his glory upon us. And that is absolutely what we're praying for. We might do some analysis of what's going on out there, but in our heart of hearts, it's back to the power of the gospel you've talked about. It's back to the power of God. This is a supernatural territory that we're talking about. I'm excited. It's, it's fantastic to hear from you. Damalola, I want to say thank you so much for inspiring us, for preaching a little, and for fitting in uh, <laughs> about twice as much content as we normally do. Um, but that was wonderful, amazing. And you are a gift to us and a challenge. Bless you. Very kind. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. As always, please take the time to like, rate and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. To find out more about Being Human and the work that we're doing, go to beinghumanlens.com. Until next time, take care and God bless. Mm-hmm.